In a different lifetime, I worked in an office that was a short walk from a convenience store. And so every so often when I needed to stretch my legs or get a little drink, I'd venture out of my office and walk the several blocks down the way. Midway between my office and the store, there was a lot, an empty lot fenced in where some sort of company stored a bunch of their equipment. It was a type of equipment you'd see at a road construction site. And so graders and different things for shaping and working with pavement. And one of them always had a sign that grabbed my eye on the back of it. It said, stay back soft. Stay back soft. And I remember reading that every time I walked, puzzling over what that word could possibly mean. If I saw that piece of equipment on the road and I was driving behind it, how would I obey this curious sign? I'd stay back, but I'm not exactly sure how. I didn't know what the word soft meant. Stay back soft. Stay back soft. And the years went by of me walking to get a drink and reading the sign again. Stay back soft. And I'd get my next one a month later. Stay back soft. I'd puzzle over that thing late at night. When I'd wake up, I'd think about stay back soft, wondering what on earth the writer of the sign meant. And then one day, with no warning at all, I looked at the sign a different way. I don't know if I squinted or tilted my head or just hadn't had enough sleep, but it dawned on me that stay back soft looked quite a bit like that. So with my intelligence firmly established this morning, let me tell you where we're going. My name is Jason Bandura. I'm part of the pastoral team here, and I have opportunity to set up a new series for five weeks leading us toward Easter. With a little interruption here and there, we're going to speak on the theme of the cross. Our title is Cross Culture, and I want to tell you what that means and where we're going. In the book of Hebrews, the opening verses tell us how God has revealed himself through history. They say, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times In various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory. He is the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. The cross is Simple enough that a kid with a crayon can sketch it. But it is quite a bit more than that. It's a little bit like stay back soft. You can look at it a long time. I bet you're not seeing nearly as much as is there. So over the next two months, five weeks spread out, as we speak of the cross, whenever we say the cross, we are talking about more than two lengths of lumber on which the Lord was crucified. We are even talking about more than the events that occurred six hours, one Friday, 20 centuries ago. Every time we say the cross, we are referring to all the revelation and redemption that is wrapped up in the life, death, and burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is who he is. This is how he is 
who he is. This is also who he calls us to be, who he influences us and invites us to be. The cross is the centerpiece of God's revelation to us. And as Hebrews told us, God has revealed himself in many ways from the start of time to today. He has revealed himself in a multitude of voices. There is a long list in human history of encounters and experiences and metaphors and miracles and images and illustrations. God has sketched for us who he is in a plurality of ways. And we can learn about God in many ways. However, all of those are hints to the whole. They're all fragments of the fullness. And that's what Hebrews told us, that in these days, he has revealed himself by his son. In Jesus, we have something completely different. That was the writer of Hebrews describing it. The writer of Colossians, who we know to be Paul, said it this way, the son is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation. In him, all things are created. Things in heaven, things on earth, visible things, invisible things, thrones, powers, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him, all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead so that in everything, he has supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth, things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Hebrews 1 says God reveals himself in fragments and pieces. He's done it for all of time. But in his son, he reveals himself in fullness. Colossians 1 is loaded. We could preach these six verses for six weeks. There's too much to be said. Do you see the description of Jesus? He is the first. He's the last. He's the middle. He's the cause. He's the core. He's the king. Things in the heavens, things on the earth, things you see, things you don't see. He's the healer in whom all the pieces are going to be mended. And then he's the hub in whom all the pieces are going to be blended. And in revealing God to us, Jesus is the entire radar screen. He's all the dots and the grid. If the divine dartboard exists, Jesus is the bullseye and the rest of the board too. He, the very crosshairs, here we are, it works, doesn't it? The very crosshairs of knowing anything about the unknowable God rest upon the cross of Jesus. That's what we're talking about for the next little while. If you're scanning the landscape of the universe, wishing you could have some clarity on what the Lord is like, then the cross of Jesus is ground zero. And that's a thought worth holding. But if you buy it even a little bit, then here's the next thought worth holding. Not only does the cross show us what type of king Jesus is, the cross reveals to us the type of kingdom that he's establishing. What is the culture of Christ's kingdom? How would you describe it? How would you identify it? How would you embody it? That's what's wrapped in our title phrase for the next little while. Cross culture. For the upcoming lessons, we want to fix our eyes on the cross. And then we're going to uh, talk about the culture that it establishes. So, Father, we invite you into that discussion because you're the only revealer who matters. 
Lead us to the cross again this morning, Lord. If it's for the first time or it's for the 500th time, thank you that it is consistently the place where you reveal yourself, where you redeem anyone who approaches and believes. Let it again be the point today where our poverty is met with your provision, where our lack meets your love. It's this very simple symbol, and yet in it we find a commentary on what it means that you are the way and the truth and the life, Lord Jesus. Prepare the soil of our lives, our hearts, our souls, our minds. Interact with us through your word. Holy Spirit, the pulpit and the microphone are yours this morning. You have our ears Speak with us. Show us what it is to be citizens of your kingdom who are impacted and impacting by the cross and its culture. Amen. Culture's a word worth sitting with for a bit. Whenever we say the word, we mean something. And I might mean a different thing than you mean. So when I say the word culture, I have a bunch of things that come to my mind really quickly. I see nations on a map. I see different shades of skin. I might hear syllables of different languages in my ear. We might quickly picture flags and foods and festivals because every culture of the earth has these things. Some of them are warm and familiar to me and some of them are strange and foreign. That's a very basic way of thinking about culture's expression, but culture can be a little more complex as well. My wife and I both grew up on the Canadian prairies. We often have conversations now in our mid-40s. We talk about our upbringings. We talk about our teenage years. We talk about where we are now. We talk about where we might be in the future. I don't mean geographically. I mean, where are we? What's our worldview? How do we operate? Where is our faith at compared to where it was and where it might be one day? We talk about all these things and frequently in the conversation, one of us will say to the other, well, that's kind of a part of our culture. And then we pause and we get out our sharpest knife and we say, yes, which part? Because culture is multifaceted. And so sometimes the discussion is, hmm, I wonder if that's a part of our Canadian culture. I wonder if that's a part of our Western Canadian culture. I wonder if that's a part of living on the Canadian prairies, which are unique as well. I wonder if it's part of the fact that we lived in small towns instead of cities when we were kids. I wonder if it's the fact that we grew up in sort of middle-class families. I wonder if it's our European heritage, depending on which grandparent you want to interview. There's English, Irish. French or Ukrainian. I wonder if it's because we grew up in Christian households, sort of a conservative Protestant, if you need to put us in a box. I wonder if it's the political sprinkling of influences that we heard in our parents and their conversations. Maybe it's a part of the fact that we were babies in the 70s and growing up in the 80s and now adults in the 21st century. Which part of our culture am I blaming? That's the discussion. But a part of the human experience is that culture is always evolving and none of us get to make ourselves, do we? Quite literally, from the first moment of your existence, somebody else creates you and births you. And then upon arrival, they give you a starting point. And for the first little while, we do a lot of absorbing we receive the thing in which we are immersed. But of course we go on to learn, to grow, to change, to choose. But there's just so many pieces of culture that are woven into us. And some of them we don't question until some outside influence comes in and puts some new questions in our mind. 
This is not a small acknowledgement. There's a quote from a fellow named Pete Scazzaro. He's a pastor who's had a lot of influence on the theme of emotional health. Emotional health in leadership, in spirituality. But one of his best one-liners is when he says, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bones. Which is his way of saying, whenever we come to Jesus, we typically come because we want another way. We're tired of an old way. It's not working. Lord, show me a better way. Give me a new start. Help me be born again. And so we commit to learning from him, to following him. We trust that he's the teacher. We trust that the Holy Spirit will be the helper. And in some realms of life, we, we experience quick transformation, dramatic, abrupt change. And we're grateful for it. Thank you, Lord. And in other realms, we look in the mirror and say, man, I got a lot of work to do. My defaults run deep. And I don't know if I can even blame it on Grandpa. Or if it's just me. But it's this idea that culture is a real thing. It's got real weight to it. And so if I'm giving you a first point this morning in relation to the cross, maybe it's this. The cross sifts our stuff. The cross will question your culture. I have felt it regularly. But in this sentence of sifting our stuff... Take the word sift. You'll get it in many images. It might be flour in your kitchen or sand in the yard or wheat in the field. But whatever the image, sifting is this process of movement and friction. And whenever we're sifted, it involves shaking and rubbing. And I don't like either of them. Neither of those are entirely pleasant. And yet this is what the cross does. And here's a place where I find the Apostle Paul to be such a fascinating example. Nobody in the New Testament speaks with such obsession over the cross as the Apostle Paul. But before he was the Apostle Paul, he was the Pharisee Saul. And the Pharisees are an interesting group. If I sent you home with homework and said, I want you to write a little report on the Pharisees by next Sunday... Where would you go hunting in your Bible? The Gospels. Some of those stories where Jesus and the Pharisees had sharp points of conflict. And the Pharisees are all through the New Testament stories. Where would you look in the Old Testament? You'd struggle to find them. Because they're not there. But where did these guys come from? They didn't just pop up out of a hole like a groundhog. Somewhere in there, something developed. And so as we move through our scriptures, our Old Testaments show us sort of an evolving religious society within Israel. We get to that page between our Old and New Testament that's worth 400 years of quiet. And somewhere in there, the Pharisees come into existence. There's an evolution. You have ancient Israel, which is now entering first century, and they have a very distinct story. They are God's chosen people, ruled by a pagan empire. They have a history they count as very holy. They have prophets making outrageous promises, and there are murmurs that the Messiah will make it all right. But into that world, any little Israelite child would be born and they would need to figure out, how am I going to live in this reality? How am I interacting with it? 
And over time, within that window, four different approaches came up that became well-known. History can name these ones for us. The Pharisees we know well from our Bible time. They were mostly middle class. They had high zeal for the whole Old Testament. And if that wasn't enough, they added on a bunch of oral teachings as well, just to be safe. They were convinced that studying God's laws and pursuing holiness were the absolute priority. They should be your priority for your sake and your priority for the whole deliverance of the nation. Rome was a necessary evil and God would square it up in the afterlife, if not before. That's the Pharisees. The Sadducees were also there. They accepted a piece of God's law, but they had no time for all those oral teachings the Pharisees wasted time on. But Theologically, they had no sense of afterlife. There will not be a resurrection. God will not square things up later, so we need to make the best of now. They focused heavily on the temple, on ceremonies and religious sacrifice, and they determined it doesn't hurt to be cozy with Rome if it lines your pockets with some comfort. The zealots were another group. They thought the first two groups were both sellouts. They had zero tolerance for any presence of pagans in their holy land. And if they had vehicles, the bumper sticker would have said, the only good Roman is a dead Roman. And I will help him get there. The Essenes might have been a fourth group. They also viewed everybody as a sellout. They thought the entire system from temple to government was all corrupt. And their move was, we're retreating into isolated communities in the wilderness. We think God will bring about his kingdom, but he will not need our sword or violence to do it. They had high value for the study of scripture and the copying of manuscripts. And if you've ever heard references to Qumran or the Dead Sea Scrolls or John the Baptist, you know who we're talking about. Why are you boring us with all this history, Jason? Here's the point. The point is, from our birth, we are invited into a world where we now need to figure out, how am I going to operate in this place? What will be my priorities? What will be my responses to situations when they arise? In the beginning, we soak it all up from the people around us. When we get older, we start weighing more options and making more choices. But one way or another, a choice at a time, whether you're experiencing things or experimenting with things, whether you're making mindful decisions or completely guided by mindless defaults, you are establishing a culture. And it is the thing in which, from which, by which you will live all of your moments. And it's easy to live it on autopilot unless somebody calls us to attention. Pharisee Saul knew all of this very well. And by the time Pharisee Saul had turned into Apostle Paul, his culture had crashed into the Christ. And his default settings had been demolished. And so Paul knew better than anyone, the cross sifts our stuff. Later in his life, when he was locked in a jail cell, writing a letter to the city of Philippi, to the Christians there, you can see one of his focal points, one of his obsessions of how God has changed his perspective. In Philippians 2, he coaches the people and says, in your relationships with one another, have the mindset of Jesus. Let me tell you about his mindset. Being in the very nature of God, 
He didn't consider equality with God something he should use to his own advantage. Instead, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He then humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to death, even a death on a cross. Paul describes the shock that he felt when the culture of the cross encountered his life. All of a sudden, up was down. Power equaled humility. Whatever he thought he knew, he needed to think again. Philippians 2 continues, the cross had shocked him, it had confused him, but if he had doubts and reservations, they had been laid to rest because Jesus won. It worked. This outrageous approach. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. He gave him a name that's above every other name. It's so high that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. In heaven, on earth, under the earth, every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In a sense, this is Paul saying that in the moment... Sometimes I wonder if the culture of the cross can stand up to the reality of the world. There's a lot of other ways to live. Dog eat dog, carry a big stick, worship the almighty buck. But at the end of it, Paul says, the cross will stand the test of time. It is affirmed by God, and when all is said and done, everyone with a mouth and a knee will respond in agreement. It is the way. It is the culture. This is a little bit like people were experiencing in Jesus' day. Remember Matthew 5, 6, 7, the Sermon on the Mount. There's an image coming up on the screen. It's a photo. This is a photo I shot when my wife and I were in Israel many years ago. This is the general spot of where the Sermon on the Mount was probably preached. Sea of Galilee in the background. But if you remember, you've got three chapters of Jesus teaching very challenging confronting, conflicting, I don't know what to do with it kind of teaching. And at the end of it, the people's minds are blown and their hearts are twisted around and they go away saying, he taught with authority. When Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed because he taught as one who had authority, not as the teachers of the law. He spoke with a unique authority. Anyone who doesn't speak with authority, the best we can do is parrot the best things we've heard around us. Jesus doesn't parrot anybody. He personified the expression of all truth, wisdom, reality, the likes of which no one else is positioned to show or tell. People were feeling it. This is a different way. This is a way that will stand. This has weight. This has substance. This will hold. Stanley Hauerhaus is an American theologian, a voice that I typically trust. He's well into his 80s now, but still guiding careful thought. One of his thoughts on the Sermon on the Mount is whenever people are bound together in loyalty to a story that includes something as strange as the Sermon on the Mount, we are put at odds with the world. I'm trusting there's a lot of us in the room who hold some form of loyalty to a story that includes something so strange as the Sermon on the Mount. It builds a connection between us because we have a unique loyalty, but it is a loyalty that's out of step with the masses. That's what he's reminding us of. 
It connects us to one another. It puts us in a unique line of submission to the Lord who teaches us these things. But it sets us up to feel sifted and to feel challenged. In a different lifetime, my wife and I were English teachers in the middle of China. When we had a free week, we went to Beijing. We were in a smaller place, a smaller place of a million people. But we went to Beijing on the national holiday, the capital city on the national holiday. We hadn't thought it through. We were in Tiananmen Square with a million other people, Saskatchewan, crammed into a few city blocks. And we had a sense of density we've never had before. As we left the area to get on a bus, there was a lady trying to get on a bus that was at capacity. She was in the door, but the door (laughs) wouldn't close. She would not take a hint. She's not leaving that bus. A helpful pedestrian two steps over. Rubbed his hands together and helped it out. I've often wondered about that moment from her perspective. I've wondered if she arrived safely, if she appreciated the help. We all have places we're trying to get, but we need help to get to a bunch of them. Sometimes it's a jolt. Sometimes it's a sifting, but that's what I'm saying before we move on this morning. The cross will sift us, and the sifting's not always pleasant. In fact, if every interaction that you're having with the cross results in fuzzy feelings, I have a suspicion you're not interacting with the cross. To be sure, the cross will affirm any beautiful thing in your life. If there are things in your life and in your culture that are beautiful, that are just naturally the Jesus way, he will celebrate them and he will commend you. But we all have plenty to learn, and the learning can be pretty sharp. In my childhood church, we used to sing a hymn titled, The Old Rugged Cross. You know how the chorus went? I'll cherish the old rugged cross. I'll cling to the old rugged cross. Go for it. I'm just telling you, if you hold it close, sometimes it will splinter into your flesh. It will sometimes tear at things that you love. It will snag at things that are your status quo. It will rip and it will catch even as it saves you. So be sure the cross of Christ will save your soul. I just can't guarantee that it won't wreck parts of you along the way. The cross sifts our stuff. If there's a second sentence, maybe it's a different image. It's that the cross sinks our spirits. Not sinks like a ship, but sinks like a phone. That little sinking feature is one of the technology wonders of my life. When sinking came into existence, and all of a sudden I had the ability to enter something on my calendar that my wife could see on hers, to budget something on my phone that was in tune with her budget, to capture a great idea while I slept, while I woke in the middle of the night, and know that it would be on my computer the next morning when I showed up at work. This is amazing, Lord. A tiny little turn on the icon tells me everything's in perfect order. I wish my soul was as simple as my spreadsheet. 
it just doesn't sync quite the same. My discipleship journey is not like Dropbox. The Lord saves and changes us. How does he do it? Paul said, I've only got one sermon. I preach Christ crucified. And when he got into Corinthians, he said, this is the cross, the message of the cross. It is foolishness to some who are perishing. To the ones being saved, it's the power of God. He continued and said, there are Jews demanding signs. There are Greeks looking for wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. And it seems to be a message that is a stumbling block over here and foolishness over here. If we keep reading, Paul says, I keep preaching the cross of Christ because it is the power and the wisdom of God. I read that and I know he's talking about different people. Some to whom it will be a message of salvation and some to whom it will be a struggle. But I admit, I have been both of those people. Depending on the day and the decisions in my head, I have known the power, the way of the cross to be a salvation path or I have known it to feel very much like a struggle. Depending on the situation I'm in or the steadiness of my spirit, I have given the Lord room and said, shift me and sift me, Lord. And at other times, I have stiffened up wondering if he's for real. The sifting and the sinking can be struggles. We need to bring a prayer regularly. Oh, Father, sink our spirits to yours. Insist on that little wheel spinning. In much of the Christian world, we're into the season of Lent. Whether that word means anything to you or not is irrelevant. It started two Wednesdays ago on a day many call Ash Wednesday. It will go to Easter. It's a season of fixation on the cross, of remembering the sacrifice of Jesus and what it takes to walk with him. On Ash Wednesday, if you went to a service, a pastor or a priest might have dipped their finger in ashes and smudged a cross on your forehead. It would be be a reminder of mortality. Days are numbered. Choices are important. It gives a very sober assessment point of where am I? Where do I wish to go? It frequently turns into an experience of repentance, expressing my need to the Lord. This series might be an interesting twist on it. The ash cross on my forehead might remind me that my days are numbered. But the cross of Christ reminds us there is a whole culture that is numbered. The days of fallen ways are numbered. They will not last. At the end, we've already told ourselves there'll be one name. There'll be one way. And everything in line with it will remain and the rest will fall away. And so the cross of Christ challenges fallen ways that I sort of like at times. Grabbing for power, pursuing greatness, seeking control, taking vengeance, exalting myself. There's an endless list of ways expressed in fallen culture. The culture of the cross is working to redefine these things. Father, sink our spirits to yours, right? 
In 2 Corinthians, Paul keeps preaching and says, there is a way. There is a way from the fallen culture to the new. And the cross is the channel. But he tells us, if anyone's in Christ, this really happens. The new creation comes. The old is gone. The new has come. And all of this is from God, who reconciles us to himself through Christ, gives us a ministry of reconciliation. As if God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he's committed to us this message of reconciliation. We are Christ's ambassadors. What a great word. What's an ambassador? It's a person who lives in one culture, representing another culture. Here we are. Sign us up. This is our role. But we only know the role to the extent that we've truly walked the road. And the road is our old ways being excavated and our new ways being established. And Paul's point is, this is real. This, is, this involves repentance. This involves wrestling. There's submission and there's struggle and there's sacrifice. And however deep we think it is, it's probably even a bit deeper than that. That passage in 2 Corinthians speaks of new creation. There's some linguistic and image connections to the cocoons and the caterpillars transforming into butterflies. Have you ever wondered how that happens? I would like a cocoon with a window that I could track from step one to step fly. In my childhood cartoon mind, I imagined that if I could peek in that cocoon, I would see a butterfly zipping up the final zip, waiting, and then finding some fancy fabric and a sewing machine and creating some beautiful wings and enjoying a bit of a rest and then clamping them on at the end and launching into a new life. But I'm told that if I cut a cocoon open midway through the transformation, I will not find a caterpillar at a sewing machine. I'm told that I will find caterpillar soup. That that first creature actually disintegrates into goo where all of the butterfly elements exist in a protected state and so you have a being essentially being broken down and completely reconfigured. It is radical. It is not a paint job. It is not cosmetic. It is not an add-on. It is an in-depth I'm going to take you from one thing to a totally different thing. And the things that were part of the first may well not last into the second. That's what Paul is sketching for us. And it's not to scare us. It's to give us huge confidence to say Jesus enters our life for a deep and costly process. He is establishing his kingdom's culture in us so that we can establish it in his world. And it is not a cosmetic work, and it is not a cheap work. He is fully, fully in. Maybe I invite you to stand with me. Andrew's going to lead us into a very fitting closing song in a moment. But I think we can set our hearts up here. 
In the first century Roman Empire, every good citizen, when they gathered in a political assembly, they all knew the magic words. How did you mark yourself as a citizen of that kingdom? The words, Caesar is Lord, rolled off your tongue. Kyrios Kaiser, Kyrios Kaiser, the masses would say, Caesar is Lord. He leads us, he protects us, he provides for us. He embodies a culture of goodness in life that will surely last until the ends of the age. And in that window of history, a counterculture arose. And their symbol was a cross. And they insisted that the old ways didn't lead to life. That the wide road wasn't the wise road. That the true king had been crucified on a cross and risen again. That his was the way and the truth and the life. That his kingdom would outlast all the other kingdoms. And when the masses gathered to declare, Kyrios Kaiser, Kyrios Kaiser, Caesar is Lord, the voices on the fringe rose up and said, Kyrios Jesus, Jesus is Lord. And over time, a body grew, a family grew, a church grew that now spans all of history and we are still marked by three words. Jesus is Lord. And at the end of time, when the culture of Caesar and every other empire has crumbled to the ground, weighed on the scales, found to be dust, there'll be only one name still standing. And the prayer the Lord taught us will be fulfilled. May your kingdom come. May your will be done. Where? On earth, as it is in heaven. We're going to pray in a moment, but if you are feeling the sifting or the sinking of the Lord, the front space is open. I'm not going to twist your arm into it. If you need to be there, you know to be there. Hmm. Lord, make us faithful ambassadors. Let us faithfully represent the cross culture in a culture that has no understanding of it. Hmm. Forgive us for moments when it is too foreign to us. We invite your sifting, Lord. We invite your sinking. Persist with us when we're slow. Hmm. We place ourselves among those who proclaim with faith, Jesus is indeed Lord. And we grant you full access, Father sift our stuff sink our spirits
Well, that brings us to the end of our time together. We hope that you found insight and had moments that spoke to you right where you needed it. Before you go, share the love and post this inspiring video to your page. Who knows how many lives could be impacted by it. And if you aren't already, like, follow, and turn on your social media notifications to keep up to date on all the exciting things happening at our church. Here at Harvest City, we're all about connecting with our community and celebrating those big moments. Like if you've recently decided to fully dedicate your life to Jesus, we'll be your cheerleaders and help you take those first steps. And if you're going through a tough season, let us know how we can help you. Plus, we've got tons of programs for kids, youth, and adults if you're looking for a new community to be part of. To send us a message or check out more about HCC, head over to our website, harvestcity.ca. To all of our financial partners, thank you for investing into the kingdom of God. Your generosity allows us to keep doing what we're called to do and reach even more people. If you're interested in contributing, please visit harvestcity.ca slash giving for more info. Thanks for being here. Keep living your call and we'll catch you again soon.